Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Challoner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this great country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do visit leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, I'm glad to say that joining me on the show today on what is a humid summer morning here in the capital is Adrian Hall. Adrian is the Managing Director at Stonely Timber Engineering, a roof truss manufacturer based in Wiltshire. Uh, Adrian, welcome and thank you for joining us. Good morning. Good morning, Adrian. Um, now, um, I think we should probably start by addressing the elephant in the room here, and that's the fact that as we record this podcast on the morning of the 24th of June 2021, um, we are still very much under some form of social restrictions due to COVID, and that has been the case now for the best part of the last 14 or so months. Now, looking back at that period of time by and large, to what extent has all of this affected you and your business, Stonely Timber Engineering, would you say? It's um, been a very interesting time for us because it's more or less blown in the face of a lot of things that have been reported in the sense that the, since the end of lockdown one, we have been extraordinarily busy to the extent where we have broken all records for the turnover of this company by some significant margin, some months 30 to 40% better than the company's ever experienced before. So uh, we've had a lot of challenges in trying to cope with the increased capacity that we've got to find in almost every area of the business. And that's been a real challenge. Yeah, that's incredibly interesting. Um, So I can imagine that when it comes to that increased capacity, you're also facing other issues as well, because problems with the supply chain during the pandemic have been very well documented. So bringing in sort of raw materials, I can imagine you've had some issues there. Yes, absolutely. So raw materials, have gone up timber, which is our basic material, we spend more than that on that than anything else, is now roughly three times the price that it was at the beginning of January 2020. Um, the steel components that we're using to make the joint junctions in our products, they're also going up in price, we've just been advised for in excess of 20% increase there too. Uh, coupled with that, uh, this material is harder to get hold of, so normally speaking for things like the timber, we would take 48 hours to get an order delivered. Is it difficult having to try and look so far ahead when there's so much uncertainty as well? Because I do appreciate that we are at a point now where Freedom Day is hopefully on the horizon on July the 19th, but we've been in a process where there have been intermittent lockdowns. We're not knowing really what's around the corner. So I can imagine trying to plan ahead just um, in the face of that has been quite a challenge. At the moment, it's probably more of a challenge than it's been up until now. Because mm. The thought is that perhaps when we ease the lockdown, the pressures, the reasons the building industry is going to start to come off um, and people will spend money elsewhere. We saw a report on the American market just the other day, you know, the timber market that is, where they were saying that uh, people are now not spending on DIY, but they're going on holiday. 
stabilise all the balls, in which case we'll have a lot of expensive stock and we could get left high and dry with more material in value than we would actually want to have and the difficulty then of getting rid of it or trying to recover our cash flow to the point where we can start making money properly. Um, it does create some really interesting and difficult um, situations which we've just got to monitor hour by hour, day by day. There's no other way of looking at it. Mm, that's exactly right. Um, and I suppose it's an interesting time, isn't it, for the construction sector by and large ahead because it is going to play an integral role at the forefront of the government's agenda for recovery, which is, of course, that build back better slogan. Um, so what sort of support for the industry sort of needs to be forthcoming from Westminster now as we move forward, do you think? I have been overwhelmed and surprised and delighted with the support that we small companies have had from the government. Um, at the beginning of lockdown, one, of course, I wasn't even sure that we would be able to survive. Mm. It looked as though we were going to be crashing within eight weeks, potentially, because uh, having to keep people paid in, a, in the face of not having any income. Of course, the further schemes were part of that. Then the bounce-back loans that were put out uh, helped to keep us uh, sane <laughs> and, and sure that we were going to be able to survive through the end. We've then been supported fantastically with the Kickstart scheme. So one of our issues has been traditionally the circle if you are to invest in new people, can you be sure in getting the turnover required to, to uh, keep them on the books. Mm. But with the Kickstart scheme we've been involved in, we've got six months to make sure that we get people to the right level of ability and can be reasonably sure that they'll be able to uh, contribute and are contributing to help us to get through the problems that we've got with capacity that I spoke about earlier. So it's really been fantastic. Uh, we've also been supported by the Local Enterprise Partnership of Lincoln Wiltshire, uh, with all sorts of innovation workouts, and uh, we've had our finances strength tested, and, and lots of other things to help us to feel confident that the business is in the right shape to be able to carry it through. So uh, it's been fantastic, I would say. It's great that that level of support has been there throughout, and I certainly do love the idea of the Kickstart scheme because it is also going to help address that long-standing skills gap problem within the industry. And at a time when we're having so much people that are sort of facing unemployment as a result of the pandemic and are having to upskill and move into new sectors, there could be sort of an indirect opportunity there as a result of COVID for construction especially to really cash in and address that sort of long enduring problem absolutely so we've taken on one already we've got two other grants that have been approved for somebody else to come into our design department so we're going to have two, two kickstarters and one to go out into the factory because the skills gap is a very big problem for the building industry and i think for industries generally and uh, this system of dipping your toe in essentially with people that um you can build up and you've got time to do it you're not saying in four weeks' time, I really need you to be adding to our turnover. You've got a little bit of space to breathe, allow them to get their confidence levels up, get the skills together, and then off we can go. So I couldn't be happier with that. Yeah, it's fantastic. And um, 
just looking back on sort of the uh, the pandemic, perhaps as a sort of learning curve. I understand that, of course, you've been with Stony Timber Engineering since 2018, Adrian, haven't you? And um, it's been a real yeah. learning curve throughout that sort of getting to grips with the business, price, policy, legal obligations. Um, has yeah. the pandemic sort of been maybe the biggest challenge of that tenure so far? I would say that we've had a lot of issues to deal with um, since I bought the company. I had a heart attack six months into the purchase, so that, that took me out for a little while. We've had to get over cultural issues. If you buy a company like this one, which is now decades old, mm. you, it brings with it a number of issues which you have to either overcome or learn ways to work around, and that's been quite a challenge too. Uh, the, the, the pandemic has been just another one of those problematic issues we've had to deal with. I mean, just rolls and punches, really. But I think we're in a very, very good place now. We're, we're making money, a uh, reasonable amount of money. It's not massive, but it's a reasonable amount of money. With the first uh, 18 months, we probably didn't make much at all. And that simply, I did a lay at my door, frankly, because when you buy a company, it's more complicated than any company that I have owned myself. And we've got 10 people employed here now, very involved. Cash flow is quite a complicated thing, so it takes a little while to get your head around how that works with the various terms of payment, both what you're paying out and what you're using. They want everything under control, and with all the, the issues that we've had to deal with, both personal ones and, and company ones, as I say, we're in fine shape. I really really good to hear that sort of the resilience that's built up throughout all of those challenges that you've undergone has almost made the company stronger and put it into a good position moving out of restrictions hopefully in the next uh, four weeks and presuming I, yeah, yeah yeah go on no it's fine i was just gonna say yes it was just Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, I do want to talk actually about the uh, the future just before we do sort of wrap things up on the show, Adrian, because I'm conscious that we are starting to run short of time. Um, I do appreciate that we don't have a crystal ball in front of us now and we can't really predict what is around the corner in terms of COVID, in terms of restrictions. But assuming that we do move out of the pandemic on time, um, what are your yeah. hopes for the business over the course of the next 12 months and indeed industry at large? Where do you want the construction sector to be by this time next year? Um, well, I'd like the construction industry to carry on very much to the east, but if we keep that momentum built, going that's been built up over the last 12 to 18 months. As far as we're concerned, the small company, we're looking to develop new products and we're hoping that they will help to increase and stabilize and bring more security to everybody that's working here to make sure that uh, our jobs are secure. That was after all why I bought the company in the first place. So, yeah, what I want is for us to have a uh, playground, if you like, somewhere that we can sell our product, develop our range, and uh, not be looking over our shoulders all the time, fearful that the market's going to collapse, we're going to enter into another region. That would be a disaster. But I think there's a lot of positivity outside. And from what we're predicting, we expect
developing new ideas in with Bath University their innovation to grow and just doing everything we can to make sure that we as a company are in the best possible place with as many legs on the ground mixing products and different ideas and, and being creative. Sounds like there's plenty to be getting your teeth into, Adrian, over the course of the next uh, few uh, weeks and months then. And I do, of course, wish the business all the luck in the world in fulfilling those ambitions. And hopefully when we do sort of see the picture become a little bit clearer and we understand what sort of shape the post-COVID world and the recovery is taking, I'd actually relish having you back on the show with us to catch up on what's going on in the sector because I've really enjoyed having you with us today and it's been really eye-opening. Oh, thank you very much for inviting me and I'll be more than happy to speak to you again. Thanks ever so much, Adrian. And just because we're not quite out of the woods yet, but I'm confident better days are ahead of us, do continue taking care and staying safe with all that is still going on. I look forward to that. It was a pleasure for me to welcome Adrian Hall, Managing Director at Stonely Timber Engineering in Wiltshire, onto the programme today. Um, Next up on the show, we'll be joined by Leaders Council Chairman and former Education Secretary, Lord David Blunkett, who will be discussing his take on the events of the 14 months behind us and his hopes for the weeks and the months ahead. That will be coming up on the show next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did want to do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, 
both between services and product productivity and, and uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on 
issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of... Um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? 
I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm-hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London. But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we we saw SARS and other things emerging. I I think people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in you deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business 
continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. These kind of things you you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened but very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local we Mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, Now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, 
the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who had only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the Hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr. Corbyn? 
Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor uh, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies, uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. What's the one key key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakira Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate 
rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority in historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn mm -hmm. from each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.